Today our reading from the Bible is in the book of Nahum. We'll be reading one verse from chapter 3, one verse from chapter 2, and then all of chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord from the prophet Nahum. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a just and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake for him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil, the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for reading, ladies. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm used to William being up here at the same time, but he, he juked us. He opened the service this morning. Um, you guys enjoying rainy season? Listen, let me help you enjoy it, okay? Look outside. This, you just need to change the association in your mind, okay? This is Christmas Eve, if you look out there right now. It's Christmas Eve, so let the anticipation build. 
there is a gift coming for you, and it's wrapped like this. And let me just briefly describe the unwrapping on Christmas morning, okay? There's a morning very soon where you will awaken to what sounds like the book of Revelation happening right outside your window. Don't be alarmed. Those are the cicada that spend a good month or two with us, and they signal the beginning of Christmas Day. The cicadas will be out singing. It's a, it's a beautiful song. Humidity will be at about 90 to 97 percent. The heat will rise to about 90, 95. You see the black flag raised on all the installations. Guys, it's a taste of the coming, restored, beautiful kingdom that Jesus will bring to us. So the best days of the year in Okinawa are this close, and they're always wrapped just like this, and the paper's about to come off, and it'll be Christmas morning. Amen? Amen. All right, just like last week, first sermon done. Um, we're going to start a new, new mini-series today. Um, I have an announcement to share with you before we start it, but um, you know we've been hitting some of the shorter books in the Bible, and so um, several weeks ago, we hit Obadiah, which is the shortest in the Old Testament. And then we pivoted to the New Testament just a week in 2nd and 3rd John, which are the first and second shortest books in the New Testament. Now we're bouncing back to the Old Testament for two weeks. We're going to skip the second shortest book. That's Haggai. And the reason we're skipping it is we've preached from Haggai here well, I would say not too long ago, but I bet I would, I would actually put 100 bucks on this that less than 10 of you were here for that sermon series. Can we get a show of hands? Haggai? All right, the Benny's mine. Yeah, we just, we just turn over so much, but we pretty recently preached Haggai. So we're skipping the second shortest, and today will be the third shortest in the Old Testament. That's Nahum, okay? I'd give you the page number, but it wouldn't help you much uh, to have the page number from my Bible. Nahum's the third shortest. Uh, one, one writer said... Uh, nobody really likes this book. It's very uncomfortable. We wish it were not in the Bible, and we pretty much ignore it. Um, yeah, that's, that's been my experience. I've never heard a sermon from Nahum. It can be uncomfortable, but did you know Nahum's name actually means comfort? So this uncomfortable book was written for your comfort. We'll get into that in a minute. First, I just really want to affirm you, family. I couldn't be more proud of you. I, I have always felt this way about you, though the faces in our family change all the time. There are certain aspects of our DNA that, by God's grace, remain the same. And I, I think it's a, it's a result of being shaped by the gospel, and it's beautiful. So last Sunday, we invited you to give as a family to, to care for some very real needs, uh, really just an overwhelming response. I, I haven't checked back in with our accountant this morning, but I'm, I'm sure it's north of, of 10,000 now in just a week of giving. So Nadia, Nadia had a $600 need to prepare her apartment for family that were coming in from the Ukraine. And so we, we, the, the giving was so strong early in the week, we decided to give 12. And um, yesterday at our, our pastor's meeting, we upped it to 2,000 total, so we'll disperse the rest. We've already dispersed 12. We'll give her the remaining six. And this picture is of Nadia. She went to Tokyo on Wednesday to receive her family, part of her family from Ukraine. Uh, so Nadia's top left, that's her sister next to her, a series of kids, and then mom, grandma's in the green jacket. 
Uh, you'll notice there are no men in the picture. Uh, both men in the family remain in Ukraine and not able to, uh, to travel here yet. And part of the complicating factor is one of them is actually a citizen of Belarus. And that makes it very, very complicated. So please continue to pray that God would grant visas for those two men. They can join their family. But your gifts furnished their apartment already this week and will provide for uh, their comfort in the coming week. So I just want to affirm you for giving so generously. It's beautiful. For Paracaleo, uh, we gave them what we would normally give a missionary over a year's time. We were, we'll disperse that this week. We'll send that to Otako, $2,000 for her. And then we were able to set aside about 5000 for the, the tickets, the passage, all that for uh, the Hogue family, who will be joining our pastoral team, our missionary team here later this summer. And so again, in a week's time to care for Nadia and her family, for, for uh, Taco and her work through Pericaleo, and for uh, an amount that will cover the entire airfare of the Hogue family. I just want to affirm you and your beautiful generosity. Again, as the economy tanks, and for those of you who threw in some money on the crypto market, and you just watch those numbers continue to go negative, uh, this is what should and does set God's family apart from the culture in which we live. Generosity, even in seasons where it's painful financially and uh, it's very sacrificial. So I just want to affirm that gospel-shaped beauty in, in your lives. Thank you for giving so generously. Oh, and I got to say one more thing. What well, maybe even more proud than your generosity? It was hashtag pop, right? For partner or pass. So I emailed Judy, our accountant in California, last Sunday after the sermon. I'm like, hey, you're going to receive some gifts, likely. Uh, they should all be designated this way, hashtag pop. And on Wednesday, she emails me. And she's like, John, I'm tracking, I'm tracking the whole hashtag pop thing. Uh, but are, like, are there other designated gifts that you guys are working this week? Because I'm getting like hashtag J-pop. Uh, <laughs> she's like, I'm getting hashtag K-pop. And I don't know what any of those things mean. So thanks for that, guys. That was beautiful. Uh, I really got a good laugh out of that this week. All right, let's pray, and we'll go right to work with Nahum. Father, we're here as your kids. We're needy kids. Uh, we need, um, we need, and so we pray that you would pour out your grace through your spirit. Um, we pray that as we spend time listening to your voice, your kingdom would come a little bit more in our hearts and in our world. Your will would be done and where we are hanging on to expressions of our own will out of a refusal to let go or to trust or because we think our will is better than yours, we pray that you in your goodness would help our hands to open up today and we would let go of exerting our own will and we would trust yours, your will be done. We pray that you would feed our souls, give us the bread that we need today. Lead us to forgive those who have sinned against us in the same generous way that you've forgiven us. We pray that you would snatch us up and lead our running hearts away from temptation that we run towards and away from the evil that we would choose, thinking it's good or beautiful or better, and that you would bring us back home, uh, deliver us from that temptation. Remind us that it's your kingdom, your power, and your glory. And Father, I think even about the giving, it's a beautiful expression of your kingdom values. Just beautiful generosity for Nadia's family, for Utako, as she cares so well for women in the country of Japan, and for Vince and Brenna as they eagerly anticipate 
coming over here to join our family and are working to raise their support. So we pray again that you'd remind us your kingdom, your power, and your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Nahum, you ready? Woe to the city of blood, or woe to the bloody city. Nahum, notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Lauren read that to us, woe to the bloody city. What city are we talking about? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, uh, so we're talking about Nineveh specifically. I already told you Nahum's name means comfort, to comfort. He's writing to comfort. Um, Elkosh, we don't know any. It sounds like it's in Indiana. That's all I got. I, nobody, <laughs> nobody really knows where that is. Bible scholars don't really know. He's an Elkishite, just lost in history. We don't, we don't know where Nahum's people came from. But I, it does sound like Indiana. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, some of you have been to Nineveh, right? So we're talking, this book is addressing a real city that existed in time and in a certain place. Some of you have been there. Here's a little map, uh, kind of a modern day map to show you where we're talking about. Nineveh is really a part of the modern day city of Mosul, and it's on the east side of the Tigris River. Archaeologists, it wasn't really discovered to the mid to late 1800s, which is interesting and really connects with some of the prophecy that's here in this book. Uh, but it, you know, it was discovered mid to late 1800s. It was a dominant city in its day. Uh, when we think of Tokyo or Los Angeles or Beijing or any ma- Paris, any major world city, this was the major world city in its day. So just east of the Tigris River, it projected power in every possible way. The city was surrounded by two walls, okay, two walls. The interior wall was 100 feet high, and they would, they would, ha- they would hold chariot races around the interior wall. You could get three NASCAR vehicles, three chariots, side by side by side, and race them around. Imagine that event. Imagine the crowd for that kind of event, right? So that's the interior wall. Then outside that outer wall, there was a moat that was 150 feet wide. That's a big, that's a big pool around the entire city and 60 feet deep. That, that's a huge moat. Like this city projected power in every possible way. So that city of Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Now, some of you have been there, but you've also, you know another guy who's been there, if you've not been there yourself, Jonah. Like Jonah's been to Nineveh, and that may be your connection here. Jonah went in about 750 BC. And you're familiar with the story, right? Jonah went, he preached the gospel, and it seemed like an entire city responded and believed and the, the culture of the city was changed to be beautiful instead of the nickname that it has here, the bloody city. Well, whatever good, whatever good happened as a result of Jonah preaching the gospel and people repenting and believing within a generation, it had shifted back. Whatever uh, had grown up and was beautiful had been lost. And so by 722, you know, just 28 years later, Nineveh's army had started marching west and just swept through the known world. Here, let me just, for you folks who just love the history and maps, this, I promise this is the last map I'll show you, but I just, I want to show you this book is being written to a real city, to real people, 
at a real point in history. So I know the words are too small for you to read, but just the colors kind of show the expansion of the empire over time. So Nineveh is right up to the north in the dark blue, and the brownish color is the greatest expansion of Nineveh. And then you can see kind of Jerusalem, Israel right there over, over towards the coastline. The point is that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was a, I just want to give you three words to kind of lock away. They were powerful, but they appeared to be a permanent power. That's the first word I would give you, permanent. They appeared to be invincible. Nobody could defeat them, right? Eventually, they swept down into Egypt, and that was like the heavyweight matchup of the day. They knock Egypt out. They were the dominant world power, okay? So they were, seemed to be permanent. They had at least a 100-year reign of terror, right? They were the, the big dog for at least 100 years, more like 150. Permanent, invincible, nobody could take them, and just terrorizing, okay? So permanent, invincible, and terrorizing, fear-inducing. I'm not going to show any images. If you would like to, you could. I know last week I told you to use your femel to go see your mom, but you can use your femel. Still good, right? You can still use femel? Okay. Go to England, and in London, there's a museum that displays relief art from not only from this era, but from the city of Nineveh, and the artwork displays their military conquests. But what it really displays, and you can just Google this and read about it, it displays the absolute brutality, the terror that they utilize to exert power and control over people. So if you were to go to this museum or Google later today, you would see artwork depicting piles of decapitated heads, you know, immediately after they're successful on a, on a battlefield, just chopping heads and, and piling them on the ground, inducing fear. You could see relief artwork of bodies just uh, impaled with wooden stakes and stacked around to incite fear. You could see mutilated bodies or piles of arms, hands, legs, feet, ears, tongues, all the things. Brutal, just absolute brutality. They would come into a city, they would conquer it, they would brutalize the people, and then they would take all of the strong, healthy, younger people from that city and bring them into further into the empire and then repopulate the city with people who had no roots there, uh, but they would repopulate it with a, 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 a number of people who were already living in absolute fear and would never rebel against the empire. So this was their pattern, just absolute brutality. 100-year reign of terror, we need to remember that, so it felt permanent. They felt to be invincible, and it was absolutely fear-inducing. This map is helpful to us because what I would like for you to imagine is this casting one big shadow over the known world, which informs our big idea, guys, which I'm sorry I skipped over. If you could just pop that onto the screen for me. Uh, here's our big idea for the morning, which was true for the people of Nahum's day, and it's true for us today. When haunted by inescapable shadows cast from the bloody city, take comfort in God's character. Nahum is all about comfort. He's writing to people who live in the haunted shadows of the bloody city. And what we're going to see in his book this morning is that 
The way he tries to give comfort is by pointing God's people to his character. And then he shows them exactly how that character will be exercised for their good. So when we find ourselves living in the haunted shadows cast by the bloody city, take comfort by looking to God's character. All right, so we have the bloody city. Now this idea of shadows. Nahum was written at the height of power for the Assyrian Empire. They were closing in on Jerusalem. In fact, um, it, just south of Jerusalem, the Assyrian army had already defeated, ready for this, 50 key cities. Uh, one of which, you can read about this, you Google it. I mean, it's, it's history. Uh, Lachish, L-A-C-H-I-S-H, I believe, they had, that was like the most strategic city guarding Jerusalem. So if Lachish falls, Jerusalem falls. And it's in this moment that, that Nahum speaks to the Assyrian people. So not only are they living in shadows, they are living days away, right? It's an imminent, imposing feeling that the darkness is going to close in on us and swallow us up, living in the shadows. Now, I like some of the imagery that Nahum uses here, but let's, let me point you to verse 7. This is what life is like in the shadows of the bloody city. Notice just the middle line, a stronghold. He's speaking about God, but he says, in the day of trouble. So guys, Nahum is writing to people who are personally experiencing an incredible day of trouble. Now, none of us ever answer that way, right? When people ask us how we're doing, do you ever answer? Man, this has been an incredible day of trouble for me. We need to start answering questions like this and being more honest. I've worked lately to be more honest, so don't be alarmed when you ask me how I'm doing and it sounds really bad. <laughs> I'm just trying to be a little more honest. Day of trouble. But Nahum uses some language in here. Notice, I'm not going to read them all right now, but in the opening lines, he talks about, he talks about the sea and the river and the mountains and the hills the entire earth. He talks about rocks that need to be broken into pieces. Now that's really helpful for us because I imagine if you lived in Jerusalem in the mid 600s BC and you were already a vassal state of Assyria, that you lived with this constant sense of there's a storm coming in the, from the sea that's going to wipe us out. The river is, right, it's poetic, right? The river is rising and it's going it's to destroy us. There's a mountain of fear in front of us. It's the only thing that I can see. There is a, a rock, an incredible weight that needs to be broken up that I'm carrying and in I can't let it go. It's suffocating me. It's crushing me and I need rescue, right? It's a day of trouble. Now, one thing I do want to point out before I make a parallel for us, look at verse 12. Part of living in the shadows, part of this day of trouble was just the reality of living in a broken world. We all experience that. We have days of trouble. We have incredible fears that seem to be permanent and invincible. Hundred year reigns of terror um, that are a reality because we live in a broken world. But I want to show you this in verse 12, because this is a reality for us too. Notice what, what he says. Mm, end of verse 12. He says, though, this is God talking to his, to his people. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. 
What he's doing is he's reminding them that a part of the reason that Assyria was a real threat to them was that God had allowed Assyria to invade Israel and the northern, the northern kingdom and Judah as a form of judgment because of their repeated rebellion against God. That gives us a helpful category to think about our own lives, family, because we experience profound days of trouble, consequences, fears, uh, uh, rising rivers, crashing waves, um, imposing mountains and heavy rocks because two reasons, primarily two categories. We live in a broken world, sin is a reality, and really bad things happen, and so we're affected. But we also experience days of trouble because we were rebels, and even though we've been rescued, we still have rebel tendencies. And so there are very real seasons of trouble in our lives that are self-inflicted or self-induced, if you will, where we live with the consequences of rebelling against our God. So life in the shadows. Nineveh is long gone. The city of Nineveh, the original bloody city, if you will, is long gone. But without walking through the pages of history, we could point out all the kids and grandkids and great, 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 great grandkids of Nineveh. We could name cities and empires and kingdoms and countries and kings throughout history that have also earned the title of bloody city, right? We could do that right now. With, we're all very aware. I mean, there are plenty of bloody cities still all around the world, but maybe most pressing in the news is the reality that continues to go on for Nadia's family and for people in the country of Ukraine, right? That's classic bloody of city, terrorizing uh, people living in the shadows, right? Um, here's another example. I wake up this morning to news from my, my favorite city, Buffalo, where there was a shooting in a Topps grocery store. Uh, the guy actually drove across the state to, to carry out this um, act of terror, and 10 people were shot while they were getting their groceries in a Topps in Buffalo while we were all sleeping last night. Bloody city is everywhere, guys. And so as we think through categories for Nahum and how it applies to us, I want to give you two, kind of two categories. First is, Nineveh was a real city with real injustice and real brutality and real bloodshed. There are in our world today thousands of Ninevehs, thousands of bloody cities, innumerable expressions of injustice, innumerable expressions of suffering and harm and oppression and taking advantage of people. You just go on and on and on. Bloody city, right? So it's still very real. It's not just metaphor. It's not just poetry. It's not just history. It's real. But there is also a sense in which it can be metaphorical for us in that we know in rebellion the entire world is one big bloody city, right? The entire world, because of mankind's rebellion against God, where we, have, we were created to live for his fame and the flourishing of others, we flip that to live for our fame and our own flourishing, and we use other people to that end. There is a sense in which the world is a bloody city in all of its rebellion, and so we all live in the shadows of the bloody city and so maybe, maybe if you have a hard time pointing to an actual source of oppression or injustice in like a real city or a real law or a real personal experience or system and structure or person's name, 
we can all point to something in the shadows that would be the bloody city that is dominating your life. And so let's just go back to our key words to help us identify that. It would be something that feels invincible. You can't beat it, right? So it feels like you can't beat it. It owns you. It feels permanent. 100-year reign of terror. So whatever it is that feels permanent for you, feels invincible, and it, indu- and it incites fear in your heart. There is a good example of a bloody city for you, where it feels like a crashing wave from, from the ocean, a tsunami, a rising river, a dominant mountain, or a heavy weight that you just can't get rid of for yourself. There is a bloody city. So what did, what did God's kids living in the shadows of a bloody city need from Nahum? They needed to see their God, their father. They needed to see his character, and that needed to be the source of their comfort. And Nahum does exactly that. In verse 7, he says, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Your dad is good. You live in the shadows. Your dad is good. Guys, the shadows lie to you. The shadows lie every day. The shadows would tell you your dad is not good that he's absent, that he's distant, that he's uncaring. The shadows lie. One of the hardest realities of shadows for us or living in the shadows is, well, let me get to that. Let me save that. I'll get to it. Okay, the shadows lie. And so Nahum spends this entire first chapter for us pointing to the good character of their father and how that character will be exercised for their good. It reminded me of my dad this week, my own dad. I have a picture for you, I think. It'll be on the screen. There it is. I, I, got, I pulled that out this morning. That's, my, that's not me. That's my dad. That is a classic 1980s photo. I'm pretty sure that's how he stayed dressed for the entire decade in the 80s. Pretty sure. Sneakers, short shorts, and that's about it. That's my older brother next to me in the, in the wheelbarrow. I can still smell and feel those splinters that I got from that wheelbarrow. The reason I thought of this photo was it was that year um, that my brother and I, were, that brother, were playing in the yard, and we stepped on an underground nest of something. I don't know what lives underground and stings you, hornets, wasps, bees, Something, okay, evil. (laughs) And as soon as we stepped on that nest, we were swarmed by these creatures. And in our youthfulness, paralyzed to do anything for our rescue, right? Now, we knew our dad was good. We had a good dad. We knew he loved us. But it was in a moment like this where that goodness needed to be exercised for our benefit, right? And it was. We looked up. And in all our terror, in all our paralysis, we look across the yard and we see this figure, probably in those shorts, in those shoes, running at us. And my dad runs into the swarm because he's good. He picks my older brother up first, I'm sure, because that's always how life went. So he picks him up first to rescue him in this arm. He picks me up and then he turns and he runs back. And in that day, um, it might still work. All you did was you, get, you, you got a bucket of dirt and you filled it with water, you made mud. Anybody ever do this? And you just covered your body in mud. There's science there somewhere, but it was healing for the, right? There was a moment, and guys, it linked, I texted my dad this week. I'm like, dad, hey, remember that time? Do you have any pictures? 
Do you have any pictures from that day? I, I know he does, but he, he said he didn't. I know they have one in the, I've seen it. And he's like, yeah, no, I know, don't, I don't think I have it. But he's like, he's like, that day is one of the most vivid days in my memory. I'm like, yeah, me too, me too. I will never forget that day. And on that day, the goodness of my dad's character was exercised for our good. And family, what Nahum's people needed and what you need this morning as you live in the shadows of the bloody city, you need to see that your dad is good and that he will act for your good. Look at this. How is God's goodness expressed towards his kid as a father? Verse 2. Let's run through a few of these. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is jealous. He's a jealous father. We, we can relate to the sense, especially if you're a parent, you don't mess with my kids. I'm a jealous dad. That's my, that's my boy. That's my girl and my other boys. I'm sure be in the model class or model student next door, right? You don't mess with my kids. I am a jealous dad and I will step in and intervene. That's the sense that the word is being communicated in. He is a jealous father and an avenging God. Now look at this. This is kind of cool. Any Avenger fans in here? Who's your favorite Avenger character? Cap Captain America. Anybody else? Doctor Strange. Okay. Look at it. Avengers are found in the Bible. Look at this. Verse 2. Now, you, you think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. There's a Hebrew superlative in this verse. I just want to show you. Just notice avenging or avenger is used three times. So that's a linguistic tool. It's meant to be a Hebrew superlative that would say, our father is the avenger of the avengers. In other words, whoever your avenger hero is, whatever, they're all very flawed and imperfect, aren't they? But there are some admirable qualities. Whatever admirable, admirable quality they reflect, our father is the avenger of the avengers. He's jealous for his kids, and he is the avenger of the avengers. He's wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries who would attack his kids, and he keeps wrath for those enemies. Now, in the shadows, it feels like God is absent, yeah? And in his absence, it feels like God is powerless. If he was loving, why wouldn't he be in the shadows with me? If he's powerful, why don't the shadows go away right now? Maybe anticipating that question in verse 3, the Lord is what? Slow. Sounds like an insult. Our dad's slow, slow to anger, right? He's slow to the exercise of that wrathful, vengeance, jealous, those are my kids. He's slow to that, but he's great in power. In other words, Nahum's saying to us, don't mistake God's measured response for his absence or his indifference or his uncaring. Do not mistake it, but that's what the shadows would tell us, and they lie to us, don't they? He's distant. He's uncaring. He, He's powerless to change this. No, he's coming. Just like my father was running towards us in that swarm of bees, and he was not Usain Bolt, right? He was not breaking any record. He was 1980s dad. He got there in 1980s dad speed, right? God is measured, but he's coming. He's, he's coming toward us in the shadows in his own time. And that's what Nahum says. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And then... We encounter all of this, this uh, we, we pointed these out earlier, the sea, the river, the mountains. Notice what our father will do. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. 
He dries up all the rivers. And those three names right there, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon, those were the most fertile, beautiful, green areas they would have all known. So it would be like uh, the green of Okinawa. Um, when God comes in judgment in a moment, the life and the vitality, the green, it's gone. It's immediate. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation, right? Rhetorical question, nobody. Who can endure the heat of his anger? Nobody. His wrath is poured out like fire. And notice, the rocks are broken into pieces. So our bloody cities that we would think of as rising rivers, crashing waves, uh, imposing mountains, and rocks that can't be destroyed. God dries up the ocean, God dries up the river, God causes the mountain to crumble, and that rock that is just dominant in your life, he breaks it into pieces. That's your dad. He will exercise his good on your behalf. Now notice again, verse 7, that first line there, the Lord is good. We have a hard time thinking about jealousy as good or vengeance as good, because my jealousy is 99.9% .9 of the time never expressed in a good way. When I try to take vengeance, or when I want to take vengeance, 99.999999, like not pure, not right. And so we have a hard time equating goodness with vengeance, jealousy, and wrath. But family, our God is perfect, he's holy, and when he executes his, his jealousy, his vengeance, his wrath, it is always good, it is always right, and it is always an expression of love. In fact, if God were not jealous, if he was not avenging, he would not be good and he would not be loving. So the Lord is good. Now, I wanna, I wanna show you this. The Lord is good. The other thing that we need to see in the shadows, and this is really important, uh, two, two words. Notice in verse seven where it says the Lord What's it say? Is. is. Like, so what's, what's his mean? Like right now, he's good, right? And it says he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. The, the day of trouble is right now. So he's a stronghold right now. And he also knows those who take refuge in him right now, okay? So while you're living in the shadows, God is present and he's a stronghold. You don't need the shadows to go away to be safe, He's there in the shadows. He is currently the stronghold. And I love that line that says he knows those who take refuge in him. That means he knows them personally. He's, he's exercising care. He's not far off. He's a present God who knows you and cares for you and loves you in the shadows of the bloody city. But here's where this is very important. There's the is and there's the will. Something is going to happen. Let me just show you this because this is where so many of us Man, we fall apart in the shadows because these get switched. Starting in verse 8, we'll just read through these together. But with an overflowing flood, he what? He will. Future. It's, it's, he, he's running towards us, and this thing is going to happen. He will make a complete end to the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into the darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? What do you plot against my dad? He will make a complete end to trouble and it will not arise a second time. But it's here right now. Then he describes the oppressors. They're like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. 
Uh, from you came one who plotted evil. So he's, he's speaking directly to Nineveh, the bloody city now, who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though your enemies are at full strength right now, and there are many right now, they what? They will be cut down and they will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I, I will, it's coming soon. I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Man, I was sitting in that this week because there have been some real shadows for me this year where I feel, like I feel the presence of the bloody city. And for me, like I'm not pointing to a real city of Nineveh or a descendant of Nineveh, if you will. They're all over the place in our world. But I'm, I'm saying for me personally, there have been rising rivers uh, crashing waves, uh, mountains that just block the sun, and rocks that just uh, fall into the pond of my life and just disturb the peace, right, and, and send waves. And I think maybe you can relate to this. One of my real struggles being in the shadows and having the shadows be very real is that in the absence of, of God making the shadows go away right now, he feels very distant and uncaring. And like Nineveh felt, now imagine this, just think about this for a minute. Historically, we know Assyria had about a 150 year reign of terror. Now take Nahum's message where God is promising that he will rescue his kids. What does that mean? It means that some people who received this message had lived an entire lifetime in the shadows of the bloody city and they died in the shadows of the bloody city. They died without God's promises being fully realized in their lifetime. I think that's really unsettling for us. But guys, if we understand the message of Nahum, our father is running towards us. We know he ran towards us most clearly in the person of Jesus. So he has already run towards us. But he's running towards us still. The restoration, the ongoing rescue is still happening. And it's really unsettling for us that there are certain shadows cast from the bloody city that will be a part of our life for decades or maybe until the grave. And religion would say, life is happy and God, if you just have enough faith, all the, bloody, all the shadows from the bloody city go away now. You're living in shadows? What's wrong with you? Clearly you don't have enough faith. If you would just have faith, if you would just name it, if you would just speak it into existence, if you would just say it and it would be manifested, if you would just change your perspective, it's all in your mind. These are all lies. The bloody city's real. The bloody cities are real. And the shadows are real and they feel permanent because some of them actually last longer than our own lifespans and they feel dark, they feel invincible. But what we need to say, see in Nahum is our father is running towards us and while we live in the shadows, he is good, he is a stronghold, he's there with us and he knows be my name. He's there in the shadows with me, he knows me by name he has promised to give me what my soul needs, not only to survive in the shadows of the, the bloody city, but to live with joy and peace 
and contentment. The beauty of the gospel is our faith and our joy in life is not dependent upon you taking every single bloody city or its shadows out of my life. The beauty of the gospel is our Father has the final say in history, so he is coming and all shadows will be dispelled, even if it happens after my death. In the meantime, he's there with me in the shadows and I can have peace and I can have joy and I am not dependent upon the existence or the absence of that bloody city. It has no power over me and it doesn't own me. I am my father's. He's jealous for me. He's vengeful. He's coming and he's actually already there with me in the shadows. That's what Nahum wanted these people to see and that's what we need to say, see today as well. So how should we respond to all of this? Let's wrap it up at the, at the end of uh, verse one, or chapter 1. I love this. Look at just 15. One more verse. Well, some of you, you saw I skipped a verse, and you're going to feel like I'm skipping uncomfortable verses, so let me back up and read it out loud so that you, sh- you know I'm not. He's speaking about Nineveh again. He says, the Lord has given commandment about you, verse 14, no more will your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you, or make your grave for you are vile. I don't want to get into this too much this week because I forgot to mention this at the beginning. This week, the sermon is really focused on those who live in the shadows. So that would be all of us. We live in the shadows of the bloody city. Uh, Next week, where we'll go in Nahum chapters 2 and 3, the focus will be more uh, for those of you who still have a street address in the bloody city or maybe you're like a citizen of the bloody city, or you were, and you, like you're, you're, you're in God's family, you think, maybe, but you still really have a foot in the bloody city, and you benefit from it, and you're at home there, and you're comfortable with it. And when people accuse the bloody cities of our world of possibly having some issues or systemic challenges, you're like, we would never have systemic challenges. Like, there's, there's no blood in this city, right? Nahum's going to go in that direction next week. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too much. But notice where he says, no more will your name be perpetuated. Nineveh fell in 612, and it fell into oblivion. Crazy story. As the city was falling, uh, the current king, you can read about this in the history books, he, he had a funeral pyre built, and he gathered everybody from the royal household and all of their gods, all of their idols, on the funeral pile, and he ordered it lit. And they burned, and Nineveh was absolutely destroyed and faded into oblivion. That city wasn't rediscovered until like 1840-something. That came true. They faded into oblivion. Okay, see, we don't skip the hard stuff. We just talk right through it. All right, verse 15, let's wrap with this. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, Fulfill your vows, for never again will the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So I love this. I love what verse 15 gives us. How should we respond while we live in the shadows of the bloody city, while we're waiting for our Father to run towards us? Two two things right here. The first is, set your gaze above the shadows. And the second thing is, set your table below the shadows or in the shadows. And here's what I mean. Notice what he says. He says, behold, that means look up, look up on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. 
As we live in the shadows, we lift our eyes to Jesus, who is the one who brought us peace and brought us the good news that our Father is running towards us. And when the Old Testament uses the word peace, it's not just like, uh, it's not like all fighting will cease. The word peace in the Old Testament means a holistic restoration. Everything about your soul and your life will be made right. All wounds healed. Everything made right. So fam, the first invitation that Nahum would give us as you sit in the shadows of the bloody city is stop staring at the bloody city. Stop staring at the shadows. We're not dismissing them. We're acknowledging them, but they don't define who we are. They don't have ultimate power over us. Instead, lift your eyes above the shadows cast. Look to the mountain that's above and behind the city and there see the person of Jesus running towards us who is our peace, who is our rescuing king, and take hope that even now while we're in the shadows, our king is coming. And even if it happens after I have died, all will be made right and I will be made whole. So set your gaze above the city. And the second piece, this might be my favorite. He says, keep your feasts and fulfill your vows. So don't just set your gaze above the shadows, set your table while you're in the shadows. So what would it mean for them to keep their feasts? They had probably stopped feasting, right? Because they were depressed, they were fearful, tomorrow we're gonna die. So when it's talking about the feast, they had stopped gathering for worship. They had stopped celebrating the feasts that would remind them that their God through all history had been faithful and was running towards them. And Nahum says, no, no, no. Set the table, throw the party, gather with God's family, remind each other that your God is good and faithful and he's running towards you and he will rescue you from the shadows of the bloody city. While you're in the darkest shadow, set the best table with the biggest feast that you possibly can. And fam, that's what we do every week. We set the table. We gather as God's family. We feast on his word. We celebrate communion because all of these actions are the way that we as a family lift our gaze above the city, the, the shadows, and look to our Father and rehearse that he is good and that he's faithful and he's near and he's coming. Set the table. Set the table. Now, there's another way we could do this just relationally. For members of our family that you know are in a deep, dark shadow, set the table. Set your table and, and bring them into your table. Share a good meal and rehearse the goodness of our Father together. Set your gaze above the shadows and set your table in the shadows. And family, some of you are in such a deep, dark shadow this morning, this week. You're like, no, I can't. I cannot. I can't set the table. I'm not setting the table. All right. That's no problem. That's why you have a family here and we set the table together so that there are weeks where all you need to do is show up at the table and we will have it set for you. And as a family, guys, if we're serious about living as God's family and we actually believe this stuff, that we all live in the shadows of a bloody city, know this, that every single week there are members of our family who have lost the capacity not only to set a table, they have lost the capacity to look above the shadows and they have even lost the emotional and relational capacity to get themselves just to sit at the table. And they're paralyzed. 
like my brother and I were in the storm of bees. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to put your 1980 sneakers on and your 1980 shorts and a shirt. And we leave the house, we run to the swarm, and we go to where our family is paralyzed in fear and blinded by the darkness, and we bring the table to them, and we sit in the darkness, and we wait. And the time will come when you can look together at our Father's goodness. He's coming towards us, but there will be a long time where you just sit in the shadows with them as a family because that's exactly what the Father did for us through Jesus, and that's who we are. And speaking of Jesus, I gotta, this could be its own sermon. I just want to point this out to you. This is really cool. I don't think it'll be on the screen. Verse 8, there's kind of a sobering line there where it says God will pursue his enemies into darkness. Did you see that? You know why that makes the gospel so beautiful? Because we were all his enemies, and we should have been pursued into the darkness. But Jesus instead, through the incarnation, came in human form and wasn't pursued into the darkness so much as he ran into the darkness in your place and in mine and went to the darkness of the cross and endured the greatest darkness this world will ever know in your place or mine. So the gospel, if you are not yet a member of God's family, gives you a clear choice this morning. That choice is you will either be chased into the darkness and judged there for your rebellion against God, or you will receive the gift of what Jesus did in your place where he, out of love, ran into the darkness in your place and took your judgment in your place so that you could be rescued and adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter. At this point, uh, one of our pastoral team members is going to come and lead us in a prayer of confession. Let's join him and let's take a moment of silence and respond also however the Spirit would be leading us to respond.